Hello everyone, welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I am your host, Simon, and in the video today, or in the podcast, depending on how you consume this fair show, we have an episode about South Africa's cop-turned-robber. What happens here, as always, is Callum has put me together a script, which I have in front of me right here. I've never read this before, I've got no familiarity with this story. This was a Callum suggestion, and honestly, he does a better job than me, so this is going to be a total surprise. It feels uh, medium length. I think Callum even said this was a medium length one. And I was like, Callum, write them long or write them short. And he's like, Simon, I wrote them medium. And I'm like, Callum, you know best. <laughs> Let's just jump in. Uh, before we do, just uh, if you are listening to this as a podcast, consider leaving a review. That would be kind. If you're watching on YouTube, smash that like button. The world loves a good Robin Hood story. Ever since that leotard-rocking Englishman took to Sherwood Forest with his bow and arrow, there have been countless iterations of the same trope. These are the noble bandits, criminals whose exploits aren't about violence or material gain. They're about principle, righting the wrongs done against everyday people by corrupt power. It's a pretty attractive narrative, which is why it pops up time and time again across the world. These stories let us live out our secret outlaw fantasies completely guilt-free. Also, benefit. Well, I guess they're not really getting any benefits anyway. These, uh, you know, Robin Hood, he doesn't keep the money. Anyway, whether it's because the culprits are giving to the poor or just plain sticking it to the man, we can immerse ourselves in their stories without feeling the least bit bad about rooting for them. It's why heist movies are so glorious, because they'll always choose, like those Ocean's Eleven one, they're always stealing the money off some right kid and you're like yeah do it it's like wait that i know he's a kid but he did work really hard and he built this big business and you're like let's steal it and you're also like well it's george clooney as well so you're like george clooney's cool you gotta you gotta be on clooney's side he's never the bad guy but there's also a pretty glaring problem with these true crime narratives the stories are very rarely as clear-cut as folklore and film make them out to be. For example, Colombia's Pablo Escobar built schools and houses for the poor in the favelas, and yes, we all remember him as a kind-hearted Mother Teresa, but apparently he also did some crimes or something. Yeah, I don't know, I watch Narcos. Pablo Escobar is not a good man. He's a scary mofo. Uh, What I'm getting at is that the realities of our Robin Hood heroes are often far less admirable than we might think. Today we'll be diving deep into the sensationalized story of one such character and trying to disentangle his glorified legacy from the gritty reality of his less than perfect life. Yeah, you're not, no one's listening to this show being like, I want to get behind some half hero. People are listening, I want to, he's bad, right? This is a bad dude. I want to know about the bad dudes. I know that's what you want because I can see the analytics behind this channel. It's like, we do something that's like, yeah, you did something horrible more popular for whatever reason i have another channel on youtube called biographics it's like you should the, the the most popular videos are just like the world's tyrants it's like your cover of heroes like let's cover uh alexander fleming you know coming up with uh antibiotics or whatever and it's like yeah that'll do pretty badly but it's like let's cover joseph Mengele, the angel of death who tortured children most popular video ever people just like the dark stuff which is why i guess i started a true crime podcast let's move on this is the story of andre stander south africa's very own outlaw anti-hero but was he really the anti-apartheid renegade the popular culture remembers him as or is there a darker reality to the story which was left out of his legacy spoiler alert it's number two. Thanks, Callum. You're ruining it in the introduction. Not really, it's just foreshadowing, and I like it. Let's move on. A robbery in Joburg. Fun aside, my grandmother actually lives in Johannesburg. It's 1979 in Johannesburg, South Africa. I've never been, though. I've never been to visit her in Johannesburg. I mean, 
like of places you want to go visit johannesburg is hardly the top of my list a bank teller's hands shake as she reports a robbery to a police officer just a short while before a man walked up to her counter calmly informed her that he had a gun and demanded that she fill a bag with cash not wanting to provoke the robber to violence the teller did as she was told and the man walked out of the front door before anyone else realized what had happened once the gunman was out of sight the teller told her colleagues what had happened and they called the police however by the time the cops arrived the robber was already long gone or so everyone thought i i think i've mentioned this before but it's like if if i'm in this bank teller's position and they're you know there's a button to set off the alarm underneath i ain't touching that button i'm handing all the money over and i don't care if i get fired there's probably also a pretty solid lawsuit in there for not firing me because i don't want to get shot and i want to live and it's not my money and i don't care that much <laughs> i'm never getting a job in a bank after this among the officers who responded to the call was the head of kempton park cid detective andre stander his subordinates filled the chief in on the details of this low-key heist and afterwards he went on to interview the teller face to face but little did any of them know the detective stander was already well aware of everything that went down the day earlier oh it's him isn't it <laughs> he's on the inside so he's investigating himself brilliant it's like a tv show in fact he knew the ins and outs of the crime better than anyone that's because the guy on the cctv footage with the black perm wig dodgy fake mustache and mirrored aviators was actually him unbeknownst to his colleagues on the force their boss had been at the bank less than an hour prior committing the very crime he had been called to investigate it's brilliant i'm not no i'm not describing the plot to a new cheesy heist movie this absolutely happened so how does one end up juggling contradictory careers in law enforcement and breaking the law at the same time ah uh, i mean they're definitely i know they're at polar ends of the spectrum you've got criminals and you've got cops but it's also i i mean you could definitely see the cop who's like you know they don't get paid a ton of money you know you're gonna see the criminals just getting away with crimes all the time because the reality is that most crimes absolutely go unpunished and you're gonna be like i got a pretty good knowledge of how the law works and how we catch people <laughs> i'm just gonna slip over to the dark side i think it's much more likely that a cop becomes a criminal like this than just a regular person right or am I just crazy on that? Are all cops like super more? I don't think so. I don't think so. Career discontent. It began with the fact that Stander never particularly wanted to join the force in the first place. His father was Major General Franz Stander, a high-ranking figure in the country's prison service who pushed his son to enter into the family business from a young age. Stander, the younger, eventually caved into the pressure and enrolled in the, at the Praetoria Police College, where it's said that he graduated top of his class. With a father as powerful as his, it wasn't long before Andre rose up the ranks of the force, becoming head of his own CID division while still in his 20s. But that wasn't enough to satisfy him. Despite all the success it achieved in such a short time, Stander was restless at not having chosen his own path in life. It's like, look, choose another path. Criminal. His unhappiness was only compounded by the political climate of the time, which saw the police used as a tool to enforce apartheid and crack down on dissidents who opposed the country's openly racist regime. When you're literally the sworn enemy of Nelson Mandela, you know you're probably in the wrong line of work. Yes, <laughs> fair point. Andre's unhappiness manifested in his personal life too. In the mid 1970s, he went through a messy divorce, fathered a child who he never knew, then remarried and divorced the same woman again. By the later years of the decade, his life was in a rut, personally, professionally, and politically. So the malcontent copper decided that it was time for some drastic action. Now, in his early 30s, Andre had his heart set on a career change. First robbery. I'm in my early 30s. Maybe I'll be considering a career change to crime. <laughs> 
The first outing as a bank robber was I'm learning a lot about it, you know, doing this podcast. His first outing as a bank robber was a little further from home than the one we witnessed a moment ago. One afternoon in 1977, while on his lunch break from work, he flew to the city of Durban. He flew to the city on his lunch break to the city of Durban, around 500 kilometers southeast of the capital. This was a simpler time when taking a handgun on an airplane was no big deal, so he managed to carry a revolver in his satchel the entire time. It is amazing what we used to get away with in the past. Like, yeah, 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 you could totally on a plane with a gun. <laughs> I guess he's a cop, so he could have shown them his badge. Or can, did they just not have X-ray scanners? After touching down the soon-to-be crooked cop, hired a car and drove to the bank. In the car park, he donned his signature look, best described as a white guy cosplaying as Lionel Richie walked inside and approached the cashier's desk. As in the robbery we kicked off with a moment ago, Stander discreetly revealed his gun to the woman working at the desk and handed over an empty bag. After she filled it with cash from the drawers, he swaggered out the door and hopped on a plane back home before the alarm was even raised. Had the metal detectors been in use back then, the man's brass balls would have definitely set them off. Is brass magnetic? Isn't brass one of those metals that isn't magnetic? I always remember my nan at a brass table, and I'm trying to remember if as a kid it didn't have magnets stick to it this is a very weird train of thought which we will end now because it's not entertaining and let's move on we talked about both my grandmas in this episode (laughs) we're three pages in wow fascinating simon well done it was clean as a first crime anyone could hope for andre even managed to return to joburg before he was due back at his desk meaning nobody so much as questioned where he was he settled back into his role as cid chief for the rest of the afternoon while a bag of stolen cash sat in front of his car outside also i mean this was back in the day as well nowadays it's like yeah yeah, yeah you got a flight at eight o'clock and the ticket's like please drop at six it's like two hours before i have to leave what is going on in that one lunch break, the newly minted robber probably made more money than in a whole month of policing. Not bad for a first crack at criminality. Wait, that seems fairly weak. I don't know how much a cop makes. Let's say, I don't know, in the UK. 40, he's a detective. I'd guess like 40 grand. I don't know, I could be well off. So four grand a month. So I don't know, it's five, six grand American. That doesn't seem like he stole a lot of money. I mean, we're adjusting for inflation here, considering how much people make. That doesn't seem like a terribly good deal for robbery, which I'm fairly sure is a crime that means you go to prison for a long time. And I'm sure, like, South African prison in the 1970s is not... I mean, prison nowadays is not brilliant, but I don't imagine it's, like, going to be the best for a white policeman in South Africa in the 1970s. It's not going to be a great time for him. A prolific career. But it was a drop in the ocean compared to how much he would accumulate over the next few years. It's thought that Stander managed to hit almost 30 different banks between 1977 and 1980, racking up enough money to secure a pretty cushy early retirement should he have chosen to give up his day job. But how are you going to get away with it? We talked about this in a previous episode. It's like uh, the, the, the spy guy. No, this was on a business blaze, which is another channel I do. We were talking about some spy. And he was spying. He worked for the CIA. And he was selling secrets to the Russians, right? But for tons of money. It was like the ni- it was the Cold War. So like 1970s, 1980s. Same era as this. But he was selling secrets for like 25, 50 grand a pop. And it's like, dude, you work for the CIA. You're like a civil servant. You're not going to be making a ton of bank. But he was like buying all this crazy shit. And I'd be like, dude, if you didn't work for the CIA, they're going to be looking into you. But you work for the CIA. He got away with it for ages, though. So maybe we just don't have to worry about it. But I guess as a cop, like I think I said in that episode, like if you don't work for the CIA, you just be like, yeah, my uh, rich uncle died and left me all this money. I mean, 
maybe South African police are not going to look into it, but the CIA definitely will. <laughs> and that's why he got caught and had to go to prison forever. Despite the amount of crimes he committed during this time, we unfortunately don't know much about the ins and outs of each of his incognito raids. Theories differ on why the papers never ran particularly crazy with the stories at the time. Some believe it's because Stander was white, a fair few shades lighter than the types of people that the establishment preferred to portray as the bad guys back then. Yeah, I mean, South Africa was like mega-turbo racist, so I can totally believe that. Or maybe it was just because the police were so damn embarrassed that this had all gone on right under their noses, so they were reluctant to release too many details in the end. And obviously, the political clout of Andre's father might have also played a part too. He probably found it a little embarrassing that his beloved corrections department would be booking his own flesh and blood into the system when Standard, Standard Jr. was captured in 1980. Yeah, this is not good. This is just corruption. Corruption's really bad. Let's not do that. This little episode itself is pretty well documented. We know that Stander used the money gained from robberies around South Africa to buy himself a nice new house and open a souvenir shop with his best friend and business partner, Carl Van de Venter, who also worked in law enforcement. Van de Venter had no idea that the business he was running with his mate was actually a front for money laundering, but he was about to get a pretty clear hint. It's like, yeah, we're running a souvenir shop. I don't really think we sell that many souvenirs, but we're making a ton of money. Just Is he, like, purposefully ignorant? The two were drinking together at a party in December 1979 when Stander decided to make his partner an all-new business proposal. He invited Van de Venter to join him in his bank robberies, explaining that he had a car waiting at the airport with all of his gear. When his mate refused, Stander tried to play it all off as a bad joke. I mean, I get that, though. Like, playing... You should go into it as a joke, though. Like, pro tip for criminals. Like, if you want to ask someone about whether you should be committing crimes, definitely pretend it's a joke to start. And then when they refuse, just be like, how'd you go in, though? DNI. But if you go into it deadly serious and then afterwards be like, no, 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 mate, I was just kidding. People are going to think twice about that. What the cop turned robber didn't know, though, is that his business partner was also secretly a member of the Bureau of State Security. Oh, no. <laughs> kind of a South African KGB, which is as terrifying as it sounds. He informs the higher-ups at BOSS Command. Uh, that's all caps, so B-O-S-S Command, which is a great name. Who sent agents to stake out a stolen car, now linked to Stander, which was abandoned at Jan Smuts Airport. They first searched the car, finding a balaclava, revolver, fake license plate, satchel, and various other bank robbery paraphernalia. <laughs> However, it would be a while before the robber himself showed up to incriminate himself with all that juicy evidence, leaving the boss agents to sit and watch the car for several weeks. After the Christmas and New Year's holidays, the waiting game paid off. Stander returned to the vehicle to pick up the disguise. The agent simply watched as the CID captain collected his things and then boarded a plane for Durban. And instead of catching him on the other end, the boss agents just calmly awaited his return. I mean, yeah, why go anywhere? He's coming back. Although, I don't know, if I told my mate that I was robbing banks, and then he was like, uh, yeah, okay, let's not do that. <laughs> I probably would, like, not do it. Although they did, he did wait several weeks. Nah, I'd probably fall for this Seems a bit negligent to me to let a known bank robber swan around with a revolver just for the sake of catching him in the act, but thankfully his next robbery was as non-violent as the rest. Yeah, I mean, he's never he's not a violent man. He's never done any violent crimes, so I don't think it's a super high risk to catch him doing it because then they're more likely to convict him. Stander arrived back at Jan Smuts less than two hours later with 4,000 rand in his bag and no reasonable explanation for how he acquired it. He was promptly arrested. In total, it's believed that the renegade copper managed to snatch just short of 100,000 South African rand across all of his crimes 
That's the equivalent of about $190,000 today. It might not be a mind-blowing amount compared to the other heists we've covered, but that's the real genius of it. By keeping his operation small-scale, Stander mitigated the risk of his crimes. Except he's still getting caught, and he's still going to prison for a very long time. And I feel like if you're risking going to prison for a really long time, let's do it for more than 190 grand, all right? Pro- <laughs> the casual criminalist is just turning into how to commit crimes. But don't, don't commit crimes, all right? We don't endorse crimes. Please, crimes are bad. He knew that busting open a vault or taking hostages would only invite unwanted attention and drag out the time it took to make a getaway. And as we know, the man was often on his lunch break at the time. He still needed to grab a sausage roll and a coke before clocking back in. Keeping a check on his greed meant that he could target the relatively small amounts in the teller drawers and escape well within the average police response time. And it's not as if a hundred thousand rand was an insignificant amount of money. A white man in South Africa at the time could generally hope to make around twenty-four thousand rand per year. So by sticking to this simple system, Stander managed to climb up the economic ladder pretty significantly while evading capture for three years. I mean, of course, you climb up the economic ladder by committing crimes but the problem is you're committing crimes and you're gonna get caught eventually although he probably knows you're probably not gonna get caught but he gets caught because he seems to be a bit of a dumb dumb it's like yeah 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 mate i'm committing crimes you want to join me i actually work for the secret police ah he probably could have continued for many more had he not accidentally ratted himself out to the feds arrest and trial but alas, rat himself out to the feds he did, and the crime spree of this cop-turned-robber came to an anticlimactic end. When he was brought to court, Stander gave a bit of an insight into why he had decided to hop across the thin blue line. He asserted during his hearing that he was strongly op- opposed to apartheid and disgusted with the police's role in enforcing it. So you decided to rob banks? I mean, I get being... This just sounds like an excuse. It doesn't sound like you were disgusted with apartheid, and even if you were... I mean, so fight back against apartheid. Don't rob banks. Where is the lawyer going with this? I'm very curious. According to this version of events, as Stander related to his family after his arrest, the definitive turning point in his disillusionment was with the Soweto Students Uprising of 1976. On the 16th of June that year, students in the Soweto Township, townships being the areas uh, where South Africa's black community were allocated under segregation, they launched a protest against apartheid. This triggered subsequent demonstrations in the other townships uh, that were north of Johannesburg. On the 18th of June, students from the Alexandra and Tembisa townships organized a march to Roosevelt Stadium, where they planned to deliver a statement opposing the South African government's segregation laws. As you're probably already well aware, though, the white supremacist regime didn't take too kindly to this sort of thing. A police barricade soon stood in the way of protesters, leading to a tense standoff. Stander claims that he was one of the cops there that day, pointing his gun at unarmed civilians. I get it, okay? This is not a good position to be in. Apartheid was really a piece of system and so don't go rob banks though that doesn't make sense stander witnesses reported that a few of the young people threw stones towards the police and the officers responded very measuredly and responsibly by opening fire into the crowd with live ammunition killing over 30 young people and children in their defense no callum no no i'm sure some of these pebbles thrown by teenagers really hurt yeah uh, we're definitely being sarcastic being sarcastic there during the inquest which followed the officers claimed that they were acting to prevent looting and vandalism in the same year andre stander was being tried for robbery they were cleared of all wrongdoing no those guys who murdered the protesters 
were cleared of wrongdoing and this guy's guy i mean this guy should go to prison for robbery and those guys should go to prison for murdering civilians for a longer time but curiously stander's name was nowhere to be seen during that inquest because although he claimed that he himself had been forced to open fire during the tembisa uprising there actually wasn't any proof that he was there at all unless someone had modified the official records to protect him this was a total fabrication was stander just trying to style himself as some kind of virtuous outlaw or was he really robbing banks to get back at the corrupt regime for turning him into a murderer we could give him the benefit of the doubt but really there's every chance he was just playing on a popular sentiment of the time to cover himself in prison yeah definitely it just sounds like he's like i'm in big trouble uh let's just go for a bit of an excuse understandably not everyone we're following the case bought his explanation i hope the jury or judge or however they do it in south africa i think it's just judges I hope I don't think they're buying this. Many thought he was just bored with life. After all, Stander had done his national service in Angola during the South African border war. Returning to a pedestrian life in a cushy job simply might not have been thrilling enough for him after a taste of that kind of high-intensity existence. But he just wants money. It's not that complicated. Like, motive for robbing banks is not, I'm anti-apartheid. I miss the thrill of war. It's money. It's always money. But whatever the reason for starting, it had all come to an end now. On May the 6th, 1980, Andre Stander was sentenced to a total of 75 years for his crimes. That feels a bit heavy. He didn't hurt anyone. And he only stole 190 grand. Come on! Some of the sentences could be served simultaneously, meaning the actual damage would only amount to 17 years behind bars. Even that feels heavy. This should be like a five, six year thing, right? I mean, yes, he's threatening some people, but he's never hurt anyone. Uh, I'd say five to six years, that seems fair. Stripped of his badge, the now infamous bandit was carried off to Zondervorte, maximum security prison, where he, no doubt, knew plenty of the inmates by name, seeing as he had sent them there. Yeah, dude, like, I mean, going to prison's gotta be pretty rough. Going to prison as a cop in apartheid South Africa is gonna be a bad time, my dude. Usually, this is where we end the episode with a little moral lesson and a friendly goodbye, but sit tight. The tale of Andre Stander is actually just getting started, and things are about to get even more Hollywood than before. This is a big script, so either we're about to skip ahead 17 years, he's going to get paroled, or he's going to break out. Let's find out. Jailbreak and the stand again. (laughs) Well, there we have it. Jailbreak. The second act of The Ballad of Andre Stander introduces a couple of new characters, his future partners in crime. Because despite likely having plenty of enemies in prison, Stander quickly made some friends too. His reputation as one of the most profitable and ballsy bank robbers in the country's history. South Africa, you got a lame history of bank robbing if one of the best, most ballsy robbers was a guy who didn't, he just walked in with a gun, stole 190 grand in total, and that's it. That's it. That's, that's it. (laughs) I mean, great. I mean, good for you, South Africa. You don't have a lot of violent crime. Oh, wait, no, that doesn't seem correct. This, uh, so he actually commanded quite a bit of respect on the inside. As a result, another bank robber named Alan Heil became one of his closest buddies in Zondervorte. Heil wasn't quite so prolific a robber, having only managed five capers in his career, but the two were well aware of each other's exploits. Stander even played up to the ego of the younger counterpart by calling him South Africa's most notorious. The men bonded over trade secrets and even reportedly shared a love of political philosophy. This meant a shared affinity for groups like Italy's Red Brigade and Germany's Bader-Meinhof gang. For context, the former were responsible for the murder of Italian ex-Prime Minister Aldo Moro so you can get a sense of the kind of extreme politics the convicts were into. And also, I'm pretty sure Germany's Beta-Meinhof were not... I don't know anything about them, but I hear their name and I'm like... You know you hear a name like ISIS and you're like, well, they're not the good guys. I don't think 
Beta Meinhof are the good guys. People are gonna write in the comments to say Simon Beta Meinhof were like mad terrorists. I oh, f- Okay. Both men reportedly felt an affinity for these left-wing terror revolutionaries. There we go. Heil noted in an interview years later that Stander hated the country's oppressive regime so much he refused to even speak their official language, Afrikaans. As Heil explained it, he held the whole regime in contempt and thought banks were the very symbol of greed, duplicity, and exploitation. I hated the South African system, and as we were both bank robbers and both set on a campaign of defiance, we were ideal company. Also, I mean, yeah, it's like, yeah, I rob banks to stick it to the man. And also money. <laughs> a daring escape. These new best buds would struggle to stick it to the man from inside a maximum security prison, however, so they started entertaining the idea of one day breaking out. It started off with jokes, each man claiming they'd be the first to make it out and promising to come back for the other without any real notion of making it a reality. On the 11th of August 1983, it was Stander who got the first chance to give it a shot while attending a physiotherapy session with another inmate named Patrick McCall. The two incapacitated inmates were sat down in a clinic waiting room along with five other prisoners waiting their turn to see physiotherapist Amelia Grobler. Miraculously cured of all their aches and pains, Stander and McCall managed to overpower the guards, take their weapons before making a break for it in the physiotherapist's car. I, sometimes I'm shocked at how easily get, easy getting out of prison is. <laughs> the other five inmates decided that they'd rather not take the risk and opted out of the great escape. Stander and McCall sped off towards the northern townships, pulling off down some country roads to avoid the officers out searching the highways for them. Now, here's where the Noble Bandit narrative starts to get pretty damn scared. I'd never thought they had a Noble Bandit narrative anyway. He's just a greedy bank robber. Uh, because I don't remember Robin Hood ever kidnapping a family to make a getaway. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're not wrong, Callum. Robin Hood didn't ever kidnap anyone's family. <laughs> but that's exactly what Stander and McCall did. They came across a farm owned by a man named Martin Rieker to live there with his son, Hank. When the two farmers came out to meet the men pulling up on their property, Stander and McCall pulled their guns on them and demanded Martin call the police. That seems like a strange move for two men who should really have wanted to stay as far away from the law as possible. But Stander knew what he was doing. Having spent years in the force, he understood that there was no way they could pass the inevitable police roadblocks without a suitable disguise. And what better disguise than a police van? Oh, they're gonna Grand Theft Auto this shit. They're gonna, like, call the police. They're gonna arrive. They're gonna kidnap the police or take the police officer's van and then and uniforms and use that to escape. That is brass balls move, man. When the officer arrived at the farm, the two convicts took him hostage and forced him to switch clothes with Stander. After that, the fugitives ordered the farmer, his son, and the officer into the back of the van and drove off towards the Tembisa township. Apparently, terrorizing three innocent people wasn't enough because the escapees then stopped to pick up 27-year-old nurse Naki Fouché, maybe, shortly after setting off from the farm. Now, with four hostages loaded into the back, the two men continued past all of the roadblocks to set up uh, set up to catch them and made their way to safety. Thankfully, none of the captives were hurt in the ordeal. Stander and McCall eventually abandoned the van when they got far enough out of central Johannesburg, and the people trapped inside were able to break through the window, which led into the driver's cabin. A second escape and a second spree. Stander and McCall do sound like cops, don't they? I mean, they sound like uh, Stander and McCall, buddy cop movie. They managed to secure their freedom, but the two of them had no intention of just living a life 
quietly in hiding. Shortly after breaking out, the men stole 13,000 rand from a building society, raided a gun shop, and started plotting how to extricate their buddy Heil from his imprisonment. He was currently still serving in Zondervorte, taking a fair bit of grief from the guards who knew he, had the he and the escapees were good friends. Several months passed, with poor Heil hoping every day that his mates would make good on their promise. Then, on October the 31st, he was attending a trade certification exam, and he heard a familiar voice behind him. Come on, Alan. Let's go. It was Standen. He and McCall had the guards face down on the floor with assault rifles pointed at their backs. Apparently, South African prison guards are pretty lax, as this was the second time in a year they'd been caught out like this. It's kind of unbelievable, isn't it? Although, if two Afrikaners uh, with automatic weapons broke into my workplace, I'll probably just go with them. Whatever they said as well. Yeah, I'll just go with, go with whatever they said as well. Absolutely. Like, I, at the bank example, same with the prison guard. If the prisoners, like, dude... Get on the grounds, I got a gun, and you don't. I'm getting down on the grounds. I know my job is a prison guard, but I'm not getting killed over my job. It's just not happening. I don't care if I get fired, because I'd rather be alive. And I, don't, I, don't, I got no interest in being a hero. <laughs> Reunited, and it felt so good. The three men sped off in a getaway car and made it to a safe house on the north end of town. This would be their base of operations in the months to come. You're probably imagining some utilitarian shack to lay low in, but these digs were anything but. The gang used their combined riches to secure a luxury pad with a garage of fancy cars and a fridge packed full of champagne. I mean, yeah, you gotta do it up, right? If you're like a criminal you may as well once the story of their second and and also this just adds credence to the idea it's like yeah he was robbing because he hated apartheid and also love money and champagne <laughs> once the story of the breakout went public the media went crazy for the newly formed standard gang the narrative of the robin hood anti-establishment outlaw had caught on like wildfire and the three cooks would go on to become a staple in the daily news and a real thorn in the authorities' side. Part of the gang's allure was the non-violent method of their robberies, which resumed shortly after Har was broken out of prison. Their methodology mirrored Standard's methods from before his arrest, being as quiet and inconspicuous as possible. In an audio recording sent to Guardian reporter Chris Sullivan in 2005, Harl explained, There were rules. No shouting, no flashing guns, no planning, and no designer violence. It was not Tarantino. The object of the exercise was not to terrorize people, but to basically get in and out as quickly as possible because we were in the process of robbing three or four banks a day. Good lord! <laughs> that is wild! Three or four a day. That's how easy robbing South African banks in the 1980s apparently was. It's a wonder anybody bothered working a normal job at all. With that kind of prolificness, it's understandable that the media latched onto the story of these anti-establishment warriors. Um, can you imagine working? If they're robbing that many banks, there's got to be other bank robbers, right? And so you working, working in a bank is going to be like a dangerous job. The media sensation was further stoked by how unbelievably daring some of these heists were. For example, in early 1984, they saw on TV a nerve center that had been set up to track them, a base of operations for the task force who were chasing them, led by Brigadier Manny Van Rensburg. Taking a look at their map of potential targets, Stanta saw the potential for an ultra-daring stunt. They would rob the bank on the bottom floor of the very same building where the police HQ was set up. Well, you're asking for trouble, though. Now it's just, why are you doing this? Just go rob smaller little banks elsewhere. And just like every time before, the gang walked into the bank and walked out minutes later with a bag full of cash. Somehow, the Standard Gang never fell prey to their own bravado and managed to hit over 20 banks in total. That's not to say they never came close to disaster. On one occasion, Stander had to flee a restaurant because another patron recognized him. On another, he was forced to slip past a police checkpoint by posing as a morning jogger. But every time they came close to capture, 
The three men managed to slip the net. Well, I feel like eventually they're going to get caught. I'll remind you, I never read these before. I have no idea what the outcome is. Hire was explaining to a Guardian reporter in 2005. So he went to prison in the 1970s, this could maybe 1980s, 1980s. This is the, well, originally 1970s, then 1980s. So yeah, he could potentially have been captured, served a lengthy prison sentence, and then got out. But Or maybe they never got ca- I get the feeling they're going to get captured. They're way too brazen. It's got to end at some point. But then Callum says they never fall prey to their own bravado. I don't know what's going on. Let's find out. It was the sort of crime spree that really deserved a Giorgio Moroda Mar- Mar- soundtrack. I don't know who that is, Callum. I'm sorry. All in all, netting a total of over 500,000 rand, five times as much as Standler had managed to loan, and in a tenth of the time. This would be worth about a million dollars in today's money. US dollars, that is. And after years behind bars, the three men were going to enjoy spending it. This meant an expensive lifestyle of escorts and alcohol, making their humble hideout look like one of the more explicit and decadent rap videos of the 1990s. The gang splits up. But all good things must come to an end for the Stander Gang. It proved to be their love of female company that would be their undoing. After pictures of their current appearances were released to the papers on January the 25th, 1984, courtesy of a hidden camera in one of the banks, several of the working women who had paid visits to the hideouts reported its occupants to the police. I really wish this occurred to me about 10 seconds before I read that paragraph. I really wish I'd said, like, surely the, the escorts would know like someone they're gonna get grasped in eventually heil panicked when he saw himself in the papers and started practicing a german accent in preparation for his getaway stander had more practical matters in mind so on the 27th stander went overseas on business trying to secure them an avenue of escape these guys are very loyal to each other i mean i do like that by this point there was a growing sense of dread at the hideouts which not even a whole refrigerator of champagne could cure heil decided to leave while mccall simply refused to follow thinking himself safer at the hideout than on the streets that was a fatal decision three days later police surrounded the safe house with hundreds of officers the gang's most trigger-happy member the only remaining occupant was woken up at 5 a.m to the sound of the cops shouting down a megaphone and he reached for his gun he rushed out onto the balcony firing wildly before retreating back inside what are you doing (laughs) dozens of police officers responded in kind and mccall was gunned down in a storm of bullets and stun grenades some versions report that he killed himself in a closet while others state he went down fighting whatever the case the police entered to find him lying dead with one of his comrades shot to pieces and the other thousands of miles away, Heil made his way to Greece and would spend the next year hopping around Europe trying to evade capture while rocking that German accent that he had spent so long perfecting. Don't go to Germany. <laughs> You're speaking in a German accent and they're like, You're in Germany, just speak German. <laughs> That's the one place you can't go. In 1985, he was tracked down in the UK trying to reclaim his loot from a previous theft and served nine years in Britain on a firearm and robbery conviction. After that, he was extradited to South Africa to serve out the remainder of his sentence. In 2005, he was eventually paroled. There we go, that's what happened. And then I suppose is when he gave his interview with The Guardian. Uh, into the, He was paroled, and now he makes his living as a motivational speaker. There you go. A different kind of robbery altogether and only slightly less unethical. I don't know. Like, I don't mind the motivational speakers. I, they get a bit of a bad rap. But it is kind of like yeah let's do it yeah i don't know i don't i don't mind it i I, I wouldn't say it's unethical unless you're paying like 10 grand to go to one of these things then it's unethical don't do that please all of this sounds like perfect hollywood fodder the shootout the escape the international manhunt and we've not even covered the main event yet i am wondering what is in the rest of this enormously thick script callum which i thought was medium length but that is untrue whatever happened to andre stander the leader of the gang a fitting end. 
Like I said, he was away on business when the noose started closing, and the particular business he was tending to was very befitting of his new Scarface-style life. The gang leader was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, when his buddy was gunned down back in Joburg. He had come stateside to negotiate the sale of a yacht, christened the Lily Rose, which the gang had purchased to facilitate their great escape. Oh, this is so movie-like. There's even escaping on a yacht. Uh, the whole thing had tragically come tumbling down not long before the three men planned to leave South Africa for good, having almost saved up enough cash for a very comfortable life on the lam. The plan was to sell the boat to Florida, packed with their ill-gotten gains, where Standers buyer would meet them to take the getaway vehicle off their hands. South Africa's Robin Hood would have to make a new plan, though, since an international warrant had been issued for his arrest and his yacht had been seized by the police back home. They only got a million dollars. So, I mean, having your yacht seized, one thing I know about yachts is they are not cheap. Having your yacht seized is going to be a major impact on your finances. Also, there's three of you, so you're splitting it three ways, and 300 grand is a lot of money. But is that really enough money to not work again? I don't know. I know South Africa's not super expensive, but still, this guy's in Florida now. The ex-cop decided to create a false identity. He was now an Australian author named Peter Harris and had the fake passport to prove it. Dude, if you're just making up a, a, a career... Is author really the best one? Because it's like, so where are your books? Uh, just make up something. Like, yeah, what are you advertising executive? Great. Have you have uh have you seen any of have I seen any of your advertising work? Oh no, we just do very industry niche stuff. No more questions will ever be asked, and you're done. Great, finished. Author is one that asks invites questions. Don't if you're making a fake identity. I think this is another pro-criminal tip. Don't go for something interesting. I know you get to choose, so it's like you can be whatever you want. But, you know, putting down career as astronaut in your fake identity, people are going to be like, oh, wow, tell me more. But if you put down import-export or finance, financial advice, no one's going to ask any questions other than like, where should I put my money? A savings account. Brilliant. Done. Apparently, the people of Florida struggle to tell fake accents apart because this ruse worked like a charm, even when he was arrested in February 1984 for driving an unregistered car with a fake license. The police still accepted Stander was in fact the fictitious Peter Harris and let him go. <laughs> what? So this car's not registered. This is a fake driving license. On your way, mate. After being released, he tracked down the implant impound lot where his unregistered Ford Mustang was being held and hopped the fence to retrieve it. After smashing through the gates, he took the car back to the dealer who sold it to him in the first place asking for a fresh paint job. You are bold. By this point, the dealer knew his customer was. See, the police had interviewed the yacht crew hired by McCall and Hall back in Johannesburg, who told them that their new employers wanted to sail to Florida. That's how the pictures of these South African fugitives found their way to a to the Fort Lauderdale papers and in front of the eyes of Mr. Tony Tomasello, the man who had sold Stander the car. Playing it cool, Tomasello agreed to have the Mustang repainted and then called his lawyer to find out exactly how much trouble he might be in. What, why would he be in trouble? He's not going to be in trouble. He can call the police. Wait, did he do something wrong? He sold a guy a car. He's not responsible for registering the car for him, is he? After weighing up the charges of selling an unregistered vehicle versus aiding and abetting an international fugitive, the salesman decided to call the police. Oh, okay, so maybe he did have to register. That's weird. I mean, I guess when I've bought cars, I they've been registered already, but there's still lots of paperwork you have to do yourself, or like at least sign. And so dozens of Florida officers surrounded Stander's apartment and kicked in the door, only to find that the main man was not there. No, he hadn't made a daring getaway. In fact, Stander had no idea he had been found out, and he was just out for an afternoon bike ride. When he cycled back towards his driveway, he bumped into Officer Michael Van Statina, one of the cops assigned to guard the perimeter. Is it just a coincidence that he has like a van name? Everyone else, like back in South Africa, had van in their names. 
I guess it's just a coincidence. Stander realized he was busted and made a move for the officer's shotgun. In the ensuing struggle, he took a shell to the stomach and fell backward onto the pavement. Dude, a shotgun shell to the stomach? That is going to be a bad, bad time. Officer Satina called it in and tried to stem the flow of blood from Stander's wounds. By the time the ambulance arrived, South Africa's most wanted man was already dead. Yeah, you get shot ultra close range in the stomach with a shotgun. Dude, it's game over for real. A warped legacy. That's a pretty damn cinematic ending for one of the most media-friendly criminals South Africa has ever produced. Shot dead in the lands of cocaine and speedboat chases. But now that we've finished with the main events of Stander's life, it's time to take a look back at the story and ask how much of it is reality and how much of it is fantasy. Perhaps a good point to start with is the 2003 movie version of his life, Stander, directed by Bronwyn Hughes. As you can imagine, the majority of this flick tends towards fantasy, but we can use it as a measure for just how far the legacy of, Stan- of the Stander case has strayed from the truth. I greatly enjoyed that movie, uh, that Tom Cruise movie that was, you know, based on a true story about him being the cocaine smuggling pilot. That was a real good laugh. Um, I think it had a different name in the US. Uh, it was called Barry Seal, and over in Europe it was called... Or maybe it was Barry Seal over in Europe and then in the US it was called something different. Look, it's the, it's the movie with Tom Cruise where he's a cocaine pilot. It was great. Really enjoyable. And I'm sure largely fantasy because these things always are. Consider the fact that the movie version begins with the Tembisa uprisings showing Stander having to shoot at innocent civilians. It kicks off with this episode to present it as the formative event in the rogue cop's life and the driving force behind his crimes. But as we've already pointed out, there's no record that it even happens at all. Nonetheless, it's generally in keeping with the popularized version of this man and his life. Although money and infamy were likely the driving force behind the crimes of the Stander gang, time and again, their spree was portrayed as an expression of angst against apartheid, kind of like the time I shoplifted a dairy milk from W.H. Smith to protest the oppression of third world cocoa farmers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is like the, this is such a fair point. It's be like, yeah, you commit any crime. It's like, what, what's your defense? Uh, I'm really ha- unhappy with the state of government. <laughs> I don't like Trump. I don't like politics. So that's why you murdered people. Yes, that's why I murdered innocent civilians. Jesus, obviously. For example, in the film version, the actor playing Alan Heil uh, relates to Stander how he once had a black girlfriend who was beaten by police and suffered a miscarriage, thanking Stander for helping him get his revenge. So Stander is a hero for the oppressed and downtrodden. Right? Well, there's plenty to, to, to suggest otherwise. South Africa's most wanted man might have enjoyed a rock star image, but if recent history has taught us anything, it's the rock stars tend not to have the best record when it comes to women and consent. Uh, when you look a little deeper than the romanticized version of the story, there are some worrying discoveries generally left off the popular retellings. For one, Stander's mate Van de Venter has said that, the, said that he admitted to taking sick pleasure out of seeing the fear in a pretty young cashier's eyes when he robbed them. Dude, that is dark. Even worse, the South African police allege that in 1983 he lured a teenage girl to a hotel room under the pretense of a professional photo shoot where he raped her. Well, okay, did that actually happen though? Because, I mean, you can make up stories on one side or you can make up stories on the other. Later, another teenager came forward to accuse him of doing the same to her. Yeah, okay, but when there's two. It's like, with the sexual assault cases, it's like, okay, when there's one, it's like, I don't feel that gets a lot of attention in the media. But when it's like two or three come forward, and even if it's just hearsay, it's like, all right, 
Well, something's up, isn't it? Something's definitely up, Harvey. <laughs> These allegations were reported at the time of the gang's crime spree, but some newspapers simply dismissed them as a smear attempt by a government who had been thoroughly humiliated by this gang of anti-establishment rebels. Consider the fact, though, that pictures of the first girl were discovered in one of the gang's safe houses after the police brought them down. Okay, yeah, things that- look, when there's a little bit of evidence and there's two of them, it's like, okay. This is definitely drifting more towards, allegedly, more likely. You won't find much mention of these rape allegations anywhere because they don't sit too well with the slick anti-hero image of Stander's legacy. Heavily refracted through the rose-tinted lens of an enamored media, the life of a violent, manipulative armed robber can look like quite an attractive thing, but in reality, Stander was probably anything but a hero. The same goes for the rest of the gang. McCall, in particular, was no saint. During the gang's crime spree, they went for a gun and ammo run in Randsburg. During the raid, McCall ended up shooting the owner, a middle-aged woman named Marlene Hen. Again, the shooting of an innocent woman isn't a major part of the common narrative. Kind of messes with the feel-good vibes. So why is it that we're so keen to cast men like these as anti-heroes and gloss over the uglier sides of their characters. I don't actually know, um, other than the fact that I know that heist movies are very compelling. And I was just saying how much I enjoyed that Barry Seal movie. And it's like, Barry Seal was a criminal. Like, he was a bad dude. I, well, I mean, depending... I can't remember if he was a bad dude or not. But the movie portrays him as kind of... You know, he's played by Tom Cruise. He's obviously going to look super cool. But was he a good dude? I don't know. But I do like the story and we I can see why it's like, oh, this is really entertaining and it's exciting and yeah. But yeah, we shouldn't like criminals, should we? Should we? Robin Hood was probably a d Hold on to your hats, because to answer that question, we're going to have to take a brief dip into the wild, wild world of folklore stories. Don't worry, we won't be staying long. We're, wait, are we going to analyze Robin Hood right now? <laughs> We're only here to take a look at the theory of Australian professor Graham Seal, who's spent a fair bit of no relation to Barry Seal, that's a coincidence, who spent a fair bit of time studying the stories of the Hoods, Escobars, and Standers of the world. He even went as far as making a rough checklist to help ident us identify a so-called noble bandit when we see one. Let's see how many of the criteria our South Africa robber fits. Okay, so we're sort of analyzing Robin Hood in a roundabout kind of way. Usually male. Check. Forced to break the law by a corrupt system. Check. According to Standard's story of the Tembisa uprising and his subsequent rebellion, that is. Number three. Has sympathy from society. Check. As a self-styled anti-apartheid renegade, Standard had the sympathy of a populace which was over 65% black. On top of that, plenty of the country's roughly 20% white population opposed the regime's racist policies as well. He follows a moral code. Check. As Hal later explained, there were rules. The idea of quietly and non-violently robbing banks without causing anyone much distress is about as moral as a heist can get. Legends tell of some extraordinary ability to pull off daring crimes and avoid capture. Check. See all of the above. Finally, his death represents one last act of defiance. Check. Trying to wrestle a shotgun from a police officer is pretty defiant if you ask me. What I'm saying is, Stander pretty much fits the bill of the perfect archetypal Robin Hood character. He's a criminal whose moral credentials have been inflated to such a degree that people often forget the seriousness of all of the horrible stuff he did. As Heil put it in his communication with The Guardian, the fact that Andre was a former police captain suited the romantic notion of a good turned bad against bad. And that's where sensationalism became hysteria as never before or since. I'm inclined to agree. The timely story of an ex-cop anti-apartheid outlaw was too convenient for the press to pass up, and the subsequent generations of filmmakers, journalists, and less discretionary podcast script writers. <laughs> well done, Callum. I praise, I praise you. I, I mean, I often do, but I do like, I very much like, how you don't treat these people as heroes when they often are. So I like that, and I hope you like it too, audience, although maybe it makes it less entertaining. <laughs>
Damn it. Uh, these people have been jumping on the bandwagon ever since. As usual, though, we here at CCHQ want to give you the bad along with the good. Because sometimes a bank robber is just a bank robber. As, I've, yeah, as I personally said throughout this thing, it's like, yeah, 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 he might be a two-parter, but he also likes money. He's a bank robber. Primary motivation. Money. Obviously. I mean, at the end of the day, it was the struggle of the everyday people of South Africa which drove the end of apartheid, not a trio of dudes with revolvers and fake beards. Yes. Wrap up. That brings us to the end of our retelling of the tale of South Africa's most famous, most fascinating, most fearless bank robber. His story lives on in the popular imagination as one of the most astonishing news stories of the apartheid era, proof that a sensationalized legacy is enough to obscure even the most dubious moral character. So do we buy into the Stander Gang's image as anti-apartheid anarchists? Or definitely not. We just listed many reasons why not. Or were they just a regular bunch of money-craving crooks? That gets my vote, Callum. Let us know what you think and whether there are any other Robin Hood star characters from your country you think deserve a bit of a realistic rebranding. Yes, uh, ideas can be sent. I'm on Twitter, uh, so at Simon Whistler if you want to drop me a casual criminalist idea. I'm also, this. if you're watching this on YouTube, the absolute best place is the comments because you can upvote the ones you want and then the big comments always rise to the top and it's like that is a brilliant idea and i can already see that everyone wants to see it because that's like 400 likes or whatever so that that works or just twitter i don't think there's an email for this podcast yet i should probably set one up to finish this up today a reminder that no matter how glamorous the sex and money-filled story of the standard grang might be the reality of criminality often ends in misery just take it from the last surviving member alan Hall, who lost the better part of his youth behind bars he told the guardian be assured that if you are convicted for serious offenses you will go to prison for a very long sentence and you will have to find new strength and resolve to continue facing each seemingly endless day so crime doesn't pay Coming from a man who once robbed four banks in a day, I mean, whatever, mate. I've already pre-ordered the Lambo. Joburg, here I come. Allegedly, Callum. You've got to throw an allegedly there because, yeah, unless you are planning a new life of crime, in which case, good luck, and I guess I have to find a new scriptwriter, which is disappointing. Dismembered appendices. Number one. If his ex-colleague is to be believed, Chief Stander wasn't even a particularly good detective. Frustrated with the newspaper narrative of a genius cop-turned-bank robber, Officer Chris uh, Swainpole gave a statement asserting, When we were in the force together, he couldn't even catch a cold. <laughs> Mr. Swainpole, if you're out there, we believe you. Number two. While on the run in Europe, second-in-command Hal reached out to a con man named Billy Williams to help him retrieve the loot that had stashed in the UK. Re- asking a con man to retrieve my loot, I'd be like on mega-high alert. I'm like, this guy's gonna con me. It's the perfect setup for a con. Uh, criminally acquired loot is not there's not going to be any like follow-up for that is there <laughs> apparently he had no idea what a professional con man actually does for a living as he was surprised when williams stole the lot and turned him in the uk press subsequently done the con man super grass for his trouble it's pretty great i mean just he could have just taken the loot and not turned him in but he's like what the f- this guy number three one man came out on top financially from this whole mess tony tomasello oh the guy who sold the car to him the guy who sold the stand of the car in florida after the gang leader was shot dead on the street tony demanded his reward from the south african government worth about sixty-four thousand us dollars bravo mate Tragically, if he had just let Stander rob a couple more banks, apartheid would have been solved and racism would be just a distant memory. Thanks a lot, Tony. Uh, that reminds me of the greatest meme that I just love beyond anything. If you haven't seen it, just after you're done with this, go look up David Guetta, how you spell it, it'll come up. Ends racism on YouTube. It's just like, I got nothing to add except that just go, go watch that video. It's hilarious and 
yeah that's it this has been an episode of the casual criminalist i have been simon your casual criminalist thank you to callum for putting this together thanks to jen who uh i never see any i mean i see it later <clears throat> but i don't see it now she adds the music the graphics all of that stuff that you see if you watch the podcast if you do watch the podcast click like below please leave a comment subscribe if you're listening to this please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts i know you can't leave reviews on spotify it sucks i don't know why thank you spotify and thank you for watching or listening depending on how you get it bye <laughs>